welcome to Knock On Podcast, where we bring you archery information and education that you can trust. Knock On was created as a way to bring all archers together, regardless of the brand you choose or the style of archery you shoot. Knock On Podcasting will deliver professional insights to the latest gear, proper shooting technique, along with high-level equipment setup and tuning. Ha ha ha! Welcome back, everybody. Knock On Podcast. Oh man, I'm reluctant to say it. I'm kind of bummed. This is podcast 200, and I was supposed to save this podcast for my buddy Randy Ulmer, since he's Mr. 200. I don't know how many 200-inch mule deer he's killed, but it is a staggering number. So, yeah, my plans was to get Randy on here. Um, him and I have been chatting a little bit, and been meaning to hook up but our schedules are both horrendous right now obviously it's uh the middle of go time so uh we might still be able to do something really late tonight once he's back in camp um and once i'm back as well so if that happens he'll his his will have to be 201 so that's my plan but for now I'm going to jump into some questions that I have dug up off social media. Made a post this morning uh, and asked you what you wanted to talk about. And since it's whitetail season, pretty much head-on whitetail season right now, I'm sure that's what a lot of it's going to be about. I flagged a few. I actually have a couple other staffers uh going through and picking some topics that they think would be uh, relative as well, which hopefully those will ding in while I'm going. If not, I'll just keep plugging through according to the most popular ones that people comment on or whatever. Um, so, yeah, just to give you a quick recap first, everything's been going awesome for uh, my season so far. Um, couldn't be happier with my gear, no question about it. Next week is the big launch for uh, Hoyt's 2019 equipment, as far as I've been told. And everyone out there that's a Hoyt fan is going to be, they're really going to want to see this, uh, which is going to be cool. I can't really say anything about it. I just know it's going to be a pretty big week. And I'm going to try to get you guys uh, a quick first look, too. So that's going to be my plans for next week. I hope to to be in a deer stand, and I don't know why, but I have a feeling that I just have this feeling, for whatever reason, Monday is when I've decided to really kick off my whitetail season and get after it. I've been postponing getting in there and digging into my good spots um, because I just know it wasn't time and that's something I think is valuable for people is learning that pick and choose your battles and when the battle is ready you get in there if it's not then sometimes you're better off saving that spot for when the time is right and I think everyone out there is going to have a good year. The full moon's happening right now. Um, so if I was hunting right now, I would definitely focus right now on some of the morning hunts, specifically over this next week. Um, I won't be deer hunting uh, much personally. I've got some other stuff going on, but I'll be, you know, doing some scouting, keeping my ears to the ground and kind of waiting for people to actually get some visual on some big boys. Obviously, right now, you're going to see some scrapes. You're going to see some rubs. You're going to see some activity from a lot of the adolescent uh, bucks right now. But you're going to – don't put the cart ahead of the horse. They always come out first. They're always the first ones. Um, just understanding and as hard as it is sometimes to be patient for that for that right strike is going to be really, really critical for you to have in your arsenal, um, especially if you have 
a big buck on a property but don't have a pattern to that big buck um remember anytime you're in anytime you're out it leaves an imprint and if he's not moving during the daylight then that can be a, a negative thing um I call them day walkers when the big bucks that you're after start to make their very first daylight appearances. That's when you have that window of opportunity to try to catch them on their feet before they start to get, you know, what I call doed up. You know, once they're on lockdown with those does and they're hiding in those thickets and not moving very much except for wherever that doe's going. Um, there's kind of a small window between that period and right now. And during that window, you have a good opportunity to kill those bigger deer. Uh, but once they go into lockdown mode, you either need to be where that lockdown stuff happens frequently, um, or just be prepared for some hit or miss rut action. Um, but I like the fact that November 1st, that full moon is going to be starting to, um, you know, starting to go away, it won't be quite as full, won't be full during the middle of the night either. So we're going to have a very, very good first few weeks of November this year. In the past, we've had some full moons running kind of during that peak time, which right now we're, we're actually not going to be in that situation. So I think you're going to see a lot more, um, activities in vast, uh, periods of the day. And I'm excited about it. Weather here in the Midwest looks mild. It's tolerable. Um, you know, it's always a bummer if it's if it's rain and completely freezing um, to where, you know, it's hard to maneuver and, and move around. Uh, a lot of times during the rut, things happen fast. So if you're all bundled up, tucked into a tree, uh, sometimes it's hard to capitalize on opportunities. But likewise, when it's burning hot uh, and you're sweating to death, and the deer sweating to death, they, the movement's more focused throughout the night. And I don't think we're going to have to worry about that as much this year. So I'm looking forward to it. So I'm going to jump in here and just go through some questions. First question here is uh, from Andrew Ehard. He's asking, what is the minimum poundage you recommend for shooting a rage hypodermic? My youngster's shooting 43 pounds. Um, so... I personally, if you're shooting lower poundage, you're definitely wanting to consider the Rage Plus P. However, um, I can tell you at that poundage, it's not something that I recommend shooting an expandable. Um, Sharon and Harry both shoot anywhere from 40 pounds up to about 48 pounds. They're still shooting a fixed blade head. Um, and I really recommend that is, you know, stick with a good... Uh, broadhead that doesn't necessarily have um, like a bone crushing front that has to drive the hide really hard like for example one of the original muzzies um, like if you had you know one of the muzzies with like their their chisel tip um, you know that's going to be a lot harder to to penetrate versus like a trocar is going to cut in a lot faster um, even like the Wacom's cut fast, the G5 Montec are cutting fast. Um, any of those types of heads are going to be better for those lower poundages. I guess I shot um, one of my bears with the Tripan Plus P when I was shooting my mouth tab, and I did it when I was shooting 55 pounds and did get enough penetration, um, stopped at the offside. But that's kind of my recommendation. I don't know what the, I don't know what Rage themselves uh, recommend or what they've tested, but I just feel like for the average person, you know, mid fifties and above is going to be where you're going to want to use that. And obviously, the bigger you get in cutting diameter, the more important it's going to be uh, to be a little bit higher in the poundage. Um, and it's not just because it's a mechanical; it's because you have a very big um, you know, amount of drag because obviously if you're shooting something with a two inch, um, cut, that's much bigger than shooting a, a cut on impact head. That's, you know, an inch and a quarter. If, if a tripan or a plus P was an inch and a quarter, you know, you're 
talking a very, you know, that might be a totally different story. Um, but when they're an inch and a half to two inches of cut versus some of these ones that I'm talking about with an inch and an eighth or an inch and a quarter of cut, there's, it's not necessarily because it's an expandable, it's because of the cutting diameter. So keep that in mind. Uh, the next question here is from Wapiti Fit, and there were 22 people that liked his um, his post. So it's definitely one I need to touch on. And he's asking, how do you use topo maps to your advantage to isolate your hot zones for whitetails? So there's a couple things. Uh, one is several years ago, and I know this doesn't really help you right now, but it will help you for next year if you remember it. And I'm not sure I'll remember to talk about it, so I'm going to talk about it now. Um, one of the things that I, that I did a couple years ago during the late season was I actually just took my drone out for a flight. And I flew uh, an overhead flight above several of the places that I hunt. And during the winter time, your ability to see the travel of the deer is so much better than when you're uh, out there just scouting around on your feet. Uh, to be able to see all the trails and where they neck down and where eventually all those trails merge to is absolutely critical because it helps you fine-tune your areas. Sometimes you have to realize you're hunting the same deer, even though there's multiple trails uh, throughout the timber. You have to realize a lot of those deer are, are moving through that timber, and they may pass multiple spots on the same travel path. Um, I was out the other day with one of my buddies going through... We actually went, um, it was midweek, went out and checked um, the safety lines and stuff like that on, on several of my stands. And as we're walking, you know, he was making the comment, this is a, you know, man, this is a really good trail. And, you know, how come you don't have a stand right here? And, you know, as we keep walking and keep walking, you go another 100, 200 yards, you realize, oh, okay, yep, this comes to here. Then also that trail that you talked to me five minutes ago that you were saying was a really good trail too that went through a different part of the property, that actually trailheads, they all merge up here in this one spot. So I'm able to essentially kill two birds with one stone. It may take them longer to get there and maybe the percentage of them, uh, you know, every deer that's on the one trail is not going to be, go by that exact spot. But the fact that I'm able to combine two and sometimes three um, fairly heavy used trails that merge in one area, um, that's really what I go with. And I try a couple things. One, when I look at a topo map, I look at, first off, uh, wind direction, and I look at cover so where are the deer going to be most of the time for their bedding and for their cover? Those two things are probably going to parallel each other now that it's rut. A lot of times that dense cover, that dense bedding is where they're going to be during the rut too. The does seek that density to avoid and elude the bucks as best they can, kind of stay hunkered down until it's their day to breed, you know, and then they'll they'll venture out of that a little bit but i look at where those density air areas are and look at what the wind direction is um, for example uh, on one of the places that i hunt the majority of the density is in the dead center of the property so because of that um, I really hunt the fringes. I don't go into the middle of it. I hunt the fringes and I hunt a lot of the fingers and a lot of the neck downs that go from the thickest part out to the smaller parts. And what I do is I look at, okay, predominant wind. I've got west wind. So um, r as a rule of thumb, I rarely, rarely hunt the same stand twice. 
Um, typically I try to hunt a different tree most sits at least on a five-day rotation um, so I'll look and say okay with this particular property let's say it's a, a rectangular piece of property that runs north and south and the most density is in the center of it I'm gonna find where those fingers and where those tree lines come in and out of that nucleus and in those pinch down areas are probably areas that I would focus on and I would focus on getting to them from the perimeter and pretty much never penetrating that nucleus unless all, you know, unless all the stars were aligned and there were just crazy rut action I knew that there was the bucks that I wanted within that timber. I knew there was a hot doe in there, et cetera. Like I do always have a few stands in the center of the nucleus that are in my core area. And they're in areas that are what I would call um, evasive areas. I'll actually save those spots for the best days of the year or days where I'm on that perimeter and I notice that there's a hot doe in there and there's multiple bucks and all the stuff's going on and it's like okay here's my time that I'm going to go in there and I'm going to risk that like that's when I'm going to go in but I do always uh, have what I call observation stands around the perimeters pretty much in the areas where things choke down a lot of what topo maps don't show is they don't show trees that you're able to actually get a stand in. Um, and so there's there's trees that I call hunting trees and there's trees that I call killing trees. And there's trees that for whatever reason, their location allows you to have shots a high majority of the time. There's also trees where you're going to see deer all the time and you're always going to see action. But for whatever reason, those stands at times just don't produce a shot. You're like, yep, saw another good buck. He was 100 yards. Saw, saw another awesome buck. He was at 77 yards. Saw another, you know, had another one come through. We couldn't get a shot off. Those are the spots that during the rut can be so frustrating. You really have to focus on where are those killing trees, the trees that if something comes by you, you have the opportunity to have that shot. Um, and sometimes those areas are a little bit further away from the nucleus. Sometimes they're a little bit further in. And that you'll have to find out by having boots on the ground. That's not something that you're going to see from a topo. But when I strictly look at a topo, I specifically just look at it and say, okay, um, where, if this is my nucleus, where are all the, the filters feeding in? Think of it like a heart. If there's a heart in the center of this piece of property, that's your cover, um, especially during the rut. Um, a, a big buck killer I know told me that if they could pick one thing out of the three, the three being food, water, or cover, the one thing that they would pick above the, all that would be the cover. Uh, big bucks like cover. So if your cover, think of it just like a heart, if the cover is your heart, um, then think of all those valves that feed into that. Um, wherever those valves are, wherever those fence lines are, those draws, those funnels, the neck downs, maybe it's a, a ridge top that, that feeds down over to that. Maybe it's, um, you know, a fence line that's kind of on either side of standing crop, you know, that kind of feeds into that area. Those types of areas are definitely my favorites. Um, a lot of times, you know, I really pay attention to the wind too. If I'm looking at something that's just heavy, heavy timber and I know, well, this looks like it's a very good saddle. Saddles are very good. Also like paralleling uh, ridge tops are very good. A lot of times those big bucks, you know, they're not going to run ridge tops. They're going to run a secondary trail that's a lot of times paralleling that. So being able to find a spot to where, 
a couple things. One, you have to keep in mind, even if you get to a stand where the wind is in your favor uh, to a main travel uh, path, but you have to directly cross that and cross-contaminate that in order to get into your tree, it could be a problem because depending on how much you have to utilize the deer's main trail too, um, they could end up just picking up your, you know, your, your scent, picking up your track. And regardless of how much um, scent-free products you use, some are just way more cunning than others. And, and I've just found the most mature are the most of cunning. So I really try to, to have my entrance and exit points to where I can get in or out of that stand without actually crossing that main path. Um, so I look at the topo map, I find the nucleus, find everything that feeds the nucleus, um, pretty much mark those areas. Think of my predominant wind. If I was doing this on a topo map for a, for a public piece of property, I would immediately go to the seven-day forecast. Um, for example, if some of you out there have the 1st to the 7th of November off, as soon as you get close to that time, you know, if you want to look at a map first and drop dots on, you know, these four dots I can hunt a west wind. These four dots I can, you know, this four colored dots I can hunt a north wind. These ones I need a south wind. These ones I need an east wind. Um, you know, if you have four different things already kind of dialed in on there, then what you do is look at that extended forecast. And if you realize, okay, I've got four days of a northwest wind, then, then you know, we're going to have that little bit of a heat spell with that rain. And we're going to get some south wind for two days you can kind of plan ahead and look at that action and be able to prep for it and be ready for it. Um, but for the most part, I look where things neck down. I rarely go into the dead center of thick stuff unless I know that there's very, very specific uh, travel within that realm. So... That's what I do when I look at those maps. I'm not really big on uh, understanding. Um, I'm not really big on understanding, um, like terrain, terrain changes, and things like that. Um, I've never really been trained on on understanding that part of the map when it, you know, which a lot of Western hunters do. Most of the stuff I look at is just a direct satellite version, and I'm literally looking at cover, crop, and, you know, and where things feed and, and funnel down. Obviously, some of the things you can you can always write down and factor in are, you know, your outside variables. Like, you know, it, even this piece of property here, it does feed over towards this house, but this house... Um, has a dog there or you know for example these people might still be getting their crop out so i mean some of those things are are the things that you'll that you kind of need to factor in um so keep that in mind um but for the most part all i'm looking for is pinch downs neck downs staging areas uh i'm just i'm actually looking at a map right now while i'm talking about this uh, there's, there's a few stands that I have that are, well, I look at, again, I look at things like it's a heart and there's valves that feed that heart. And that's essentially, that's your, your travel. So if I'm looking at cover during the rut, that's, that's the heart of what I'm trying to hunt. So I look for the valves. Likewise, certain times a year, like right now, leading up to this, pre, you know, this pre-rut, uh, there's still a lot of deer going to food, going to brassicas, going to turnips, going to oats, um, going to some of those first pick cornfields. So for like an evening set, that's going to be the heart, that food source, that field. So then I start looking at, okay, if this field is the heart, where is all the valves that feed in? And you know, I'll, I'll focus on those because depending on the size of your food source, um, you might not be able to cover it all. So it's a matter of what can I get into for an evening sit without blowing deer out and what also kind of suits, um, you know, my, 
my choice when it comes to to wind direction. So factor all that in. I think it'll it'll help you uh, it'll help you make that decision really really quick. Um, let's see here. Next, I'm looking at um, okay. Uh, JM Row Seven is had another question a lot of people liked um any advice for hunting high pressure public land i'm having a hard time even finding a deer but i run into plenty of other hunters in the woods um i'm questioning conventional tactics because of high pressure and the lack of deer sighting um, that i've experienced so um let's see he says for context i'm a new florida hunter and the area I'm in is full of swampy hell holes <laughs> with a few patches of pine trees that provide some reasonable visibility. Yeah, it can be tough at times. Um, one thing that I that I do is obviously trying to focus on those areas when the pressure is less is going to be an advantage. Um, I know sometimes it's hard. A lot of people just hunt on the weekends, but... You know, if you have the if you have the option to alter your hours a little bit during this time, uh, it could be valuable for you to do so just because of the reduction in pressure. So, for example, um, one of our employees, uh, I pretty much told him, I said, "Hey, um, it's up to you, but if you want to, um, if you want to, kind of work work your hours." later you know late early afternoon on that's up to you so he can you know he does a lot of public land hunting so i know firsthand you know if he's able to get out there hunt um late morning early afternoon type stuff um during the week his pressure is going to be way minimized because there's just not going to be as many people out there the other thing to keep in mind, too, on public hunting, and one of the things that I take advantage of all the time, and this includes whitetail properties that I hunt, um, a lot of them border public land, um, and the the public land hunters are oftentimes the ones responsible for me having my opportunity because, you know, people that come out early people that uh that come out late you know people people bumping those animals around um a lot of times play in my favor so you know don't be afraid of midday sits don't be afraid of uh well one in your case don't be afraid of those swampy hell holes because those are the areas that get to be uh pretty dang good um i i did a lot of hunting on the mississippi river out on the public land on the islands and it was hit or miss for sure there was times where you'd see a deer or two and there's time where you'd see nothing and that's just part of it but remember the best time of the year is coming up and anything can happen if you spend a lot of time right now trying to contemplate where you can go to where you're you know you're not going to see other hunters then you're going to be utilizing time in the wrong place which is going to be you know sitting at home trying to figure it out the best thing to do is to get out there and commit to being in the stand when other people are going to be giving up and getting out of there um public land hunting in different areas is very very different here in iowa they do a very good job of um, establishing cover and establishing they even at times they can put food plots in um, but each each piece of public is different some has that some doesn't um, but what's important is in those areas where you know there could be does there's gonna be bucks coming up pretty soon in those areas where there's um, a lot of standing crop around but hasn't necessarily come down yet which is the case here by me a lot of crops are just now coming down those public pieces that are around that standing crop yeah the deer may not be in there because of some of the added pressure 
but once that outside cover is gone, they're forced to come in there. So pay attention to that too. If you're, you know, if you're hunting a pu- piece of public land and it's got standing crop all around it and all of a sudden you see the combines lining up or the grain truck getting parked out there, you know, taking a day off work and getting out there that next day to be in there when, when that crop comes off and see if something gets bumped in there, uh, is all going to be stuff to your advantage. Um, hunting high pressure areas is really tough. Obviously trying to get away, um, from the, the bulk of the crowd is going to be the name of the game. A lot of people spend so much time going deep, 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 deep in there to try to just get away from everybody. But if you focus on being there during the times where there's just far less people, um, you know, you can, your success can go way, way up. So for public land hunting and, and I do, I do still do some of that. Um, even here in Iowa, if there, if I see a big deer, uh, within public land or close to public land, I'll still for sure go after it. Like I said, our public land here in Iowa is, is, is done really well, probably better than some of the other states. Um, I did have some private stuff to hunt even in Wisconsin, but I hunted a lot of public stuff there over on, uh, the military base. And it was the same thing. I tried to find, um, travel paths. I'm a big, big believer in, in travel paths. Um, you know, utilizing if, if you can just get away from people, you know, utilizing the grunt tube or horns can be effective. Um, but let people be an advantage to you. You know, I remember several times tagging out at luckily tagging out early in the morning and then, you know, heading out to a, to a gas station to fill up and check my deer and everything and literally seeing hunters in there walking around. I'm like, Hey, what'd you guys get? And they're like, well, just weren't seeing much. It's like, okay, well, right now is when everybody between, you know, right now everyone else that was close to you benefited from you leaving your stand and, and bumping deer out. So, uh, keep, keep that in mind. All right. So the next question here is, uh, why do I shoot high from a tree stand, um, shot over one's back this morning? So this is pretty common actually. Um, a lot of people get in the habit of trying to just draw their peep sight back to their eye when they're shooting on angles. And what happens is you start to change your anchor point, uh, severely when you're shooting either downhill or even uphill people that are just trying to you know they're looking at the buck they want their pin on them um, and they're just pulling that peep back to their eye a lot of times when they're shooting downhill and do that their anchor point ends up being much higher and they, they're pulling the peep sight much closer to their eye uh, when they're shooting downhill you really want to focus on drawing a little bit more level if you can and anchoring first, then acquiring your your peep sight by putting the tip of your nose on your string. If you pull back shooting down, you feel the string on the side of your nose, uh, then you're acquiring it different. And a lot of people, um, you know, when they're doing that, they're so focused, not only, you know, they're so focused on seeing their pin on the target. And what happens is people then go from that into wanting to watch that arrow and watch where it hits. And that movement, that beginning movement of dropping the release hand down and starting to look over the top of that peep sight uh, to, to see where that arrow impacts, you're naturally pulling everything down. Um, so that's pretty common. When it comes to um, just flat out shooting over the top of something's back, I would venture to guess that you probably uh, draw with your pin over the top of the animal and then come down on it. And when a lot of people do that, they're watching their front pins more than their rear peep and you do what's called falling out of your peep sight. So in other words, you're trying, when you draw back, normally you're anchoring first, then you're 
adjusting your head so the tip of your nose is on the bowstring, and you're essentially wanting to align the front and rear sight to where you have a perfect single circle. You've got a circle on the front, uh, which is your scope housing or your site, you know, your pin housing. Then you've got a circle circle on the back, which is your peep sight. And you want to make those perfectly one circle. If they're in any way off, which, you know, it's common when people are just bringing that pin down on the fur. They're just wanting to see the pin on the fur and they're not focused on what's happening with the peep. And they end up falling out of their peep. So they're, they start to get separation between the peep sight and the front sight. And when that happens, uh, it's 100% a negative thing. My... A uh, buddy that shot a buck um, off a stand I was going to be hunting on last week shot a really nice buck. He actually hit it really high, got lucky, and um, pretty much, sh you know, hit it in the spine, dropped him, had to shoot him again. But uh, it was the same thing, you know, pulled back, just really pulled that peep back to his eye, dumped that pin down from the top, and you know, as soon as he was coming in, he hit the trigger, never really paid attention to front sight, rear sight alignment. And luckily he, uh, he, he got it. But, you know, people that maybe have, um, a little bit of, little bit of a string jumper, you know, a deer that's flinching a little bit and do what I just said, that combination's enough to miss and shoot over the back. Um, one of the things that's tough about not filming your hunts is you just don't really get to see what type of reaction that animal really had. Sometimes you shooting just over them could be from them flinching just as much as from you making that shot. It's really, really tough to tell. Um, that's why, you know, keeping... I personally like with whitetails or tend to be a little jumpier. I like to shoot a little bit heavier arrow and try to keep my bow as as uh, quiet as possible. It's one of the reasons why I really like shooting the full metal jacket for deer um, is because it does quiet my bow down a little bit um, just because it's a heavier arrow and absorbs more energy as I'm shooting. So the bow is naturally going to be quieter. Um, so you do have, you know, kind of less of a string jumper, but keep that in mind. Try to draw back if you can, fairly level. Obviously, you don't want to get seen having to pivot at the waist when you have to pivot down to make your shot. But you want to draw back, anchor first, adjust your head so that the tip of your nose is on the string and you're looking through your peep sight. Make sure you do front sight, rear sight alignment. So I want you to focus first on making that perfect eclipse with your peep and your sight housing. And when that's perfectly aligned and you get your bubble level, at that point you're then finding a spot, you know, you're pivoting at the waist or moving your entire arm to find the spot on the deer that you want to hit. And when you're on that spot, then you're thinking, okay, which pin, third pin, Move that third pin to that area and focus on pulling through. If you're just looking at the spot, pulling back, dumping that pin in there, then you're totally missing out on the peep sight, which is going to lead to problems. And that's why, honestly, um, this shot is so common on people that don't shoot peeps and just shoot kisser buttons. They just rip back, put that kisser button in their mouth, and... They uh, they have their head back off the string a lot of times, and they're not down on the string the same way they would. And when they put that pin on the target, you know, they end up doing the exact same thing. So anchor first, acquire the peep sight, front sight, rear sight alignment, level it, pick your spot on the animal, get that pin to that spot while you're still maintaining front sight, rear sight, and execute through your shot. Uh, next question here is had the opportunity to take my biggest buck yet here in Texas, but decided not to shoot as he only presented a frontal shot. Would you take the frontal shot on a whitetail buck? Uh, this is an in-depth conversation on whitetails. Uh, it's probably my least preferred animal. Um, and one of the things that I want to talk about is, um, you know, when it comes to shooting animals on 
quartered shots or angled shots. There's a lot of hunter safety and, and things like that that really talk about very specific ethical shot angles, broadside shot, quartering away shot, because penetration is going to be maximum. You know, you're looking to, to get a pass through. You're looking to be able to make sure you have, um, you know, adequate penetration. So obviously quarter and two, you're going through bone, um, you know, even straight down shots, people that, you know, don't really understand the anatomy from an overhead view. Um, there's a few things that factor in there. One is the closer it is, the more likely it is for me to take a you know, debatable shot angle. I say debatable because some people debate it. Some people don't. Um, for example, I've shot several, th I, well, the biggest muley I ever shot was a frontal, um, shot several elk in the last two years, also with frontal shots, um, antelope also frontal. Um, but what I'm going to say about that is all of those shots have been shots under 20 yards at ground level. Um, sh taking a frontal, a straight on frontal shot from an elevated position is a very low percentage opportunity. When you're on the ground, the angle's much, much different. Um, and obviously the closer you are, the better in Texas, the deer are notoriously string jumpers. So they're going to duck and turn away. So, you know, you're going to go from a frontal shot to literally a hard quartering two shot. Uh, there's so many things to factor in. If you're shooting, if you're someone shooting a, you know, a 65 pound bow or a 60 pound bow, or say you're shooting a light arrow or say you're shooting a massive cut broadhead, um, any of those things hitting directly on moving bone, uh, is going to, is going to reduce your odds of, of having a good hit. So you have to factor that stuff in. You have to think about that. You know, what, how much time does this animal have to react? Is the animal keyed up? Is it already twitching every so often? Like for the example, you're going to know it's going to, it's going to react to your string. <coughs> All that is super, super critical. I would say if you were questioning that shot, then you took the best shot you could, which is no shot at all. Um, when I've been on the ground and had things come in that really have no idea I'm there, I'm at full draw, all of my pins are essentially fitting on the front of that chest, and I know that that arrow is impacting virtually immediately upon the release going off then i'm okay with that shot but if you were in an elevated position and he was out there at 20 yards um especially being a texas deer i don't think um you know i'm not going to shoot a texas deer head on shooting with a slight quartering to me honestly i would probably take that shot just because um which the the video that I posted of the Rage Extreme on the Knock on Archer YouTube channel, um, that Rage Extreme shot that I made in South Dakota on that buck, he was, you know, quartering to me as he was coming in. Uh, he stopped quartering to me. I literally put it right on the front edge of the shoulder and just plowed right through that. But, you know, keep in mind, I've got a longer draw length. I've got a very heavy arrow, and I'm shooting a little bit higher poundage than average. So... I'm okay with that shot. Now, if you're not doing those things, then the shot you made is going to be the best one. Wetting my throat. Uh, next question. What is your advice for getting a number one target buck on camera regular, regularly uh, one hour before daylight? So, I highly doubt there's a way, at least I haven't figured it out, to get a number one buck. A lot of times if you have a number one buck that you're after that's on your hit list, it's going to be a mature deer. It's probably going to be fairly nocturnal uh, during key times of the year. There's going to be limited times where it'll slip up. I'm not, um, I'm not super focused on trying to make something into daylight pictures unless it's something 
that's grown up in an area where it's used to coming to feeders going off at an hour before daylight or before dark every night unless you're in an area that literally has generations of deer trained to come to a feeder at a certain time then you're just not going to have that happen and if you the more you try to do it probably the more you're going to be in that area and the more you're in the area the less likely you, you are to see a deer like that um, i try to be there less and i worry less about getting him on daylight i just wait for him to show me that he's made that decision and once he's made that decision then you have the window of opportunity to to get after him which is what happened on that video i posted last week of the six-pack buck um he was he was a daytime mover while he had velvet uh two months before season he was very active during daylight as soon as that velvet came off poof he vanished uh i would only see him in the middle of the night a lot of times after one in the morning uh, from one to four he traveled quite a bit but nothing really between that and then all of a sudden bam you know the one day hits where all of a sudden um he shows up during you know 30 minutes before daylight and i kind of realize okay he's out here just kind of wanting to sniff around see which does are coming in first and maybe mark his area a little bit um during a prime mo prime moving night movement night so i got up that tree as soon as i could when the wind was right and i got lucky uh, but oftentimes trying to get a deer like that to be predictable is an impossibility you just have to to play it right keep pressure minimal and be ready for him to show himself and when he does you have to be ready to act on it and move quick um, this type of year this time of year do you think mornings or evenings are more productive also when hitting the rattling horns how often are you hitting them so right now um, I'm actually the last several days evenings would have been my preference because the moon was coming up and was above the horizon as the sun was falling so you actually had um three days ago there was a few hours where the moon was up before dark and you know last night it was up right at dark the night before it was up about 45 minutes before um so those were great evening movement times Otherwise, if I were to be going out in the morning right now over the next week, I would, or if I was to get, going to go out in, over the next week, um, just because of the cooler weather, um, as well as the winds have kind of been blowing a little bit, and I know that movement's often better when the winds are lower, and that's going to happen closer to, towards first light. Um, I would be hunting mornings right now. I think a lot of these bucks are going to be marking their areas they're going to be um, putting some scrapes down they're going to be freshening up their scrapes after these rains are done i think there's going to be a lot of farmers taking crops out right now in the you know they're going to there's going to be crops coming out first thing in the morning they're going to be getting in combines and and doing that thing so as that happens deer are naturally going to get pushed around so i'm a big i'm a big morning person um you know, if I could only hunt five hours a day right now, I would hunt, I would hunt from eight in the morning till one in the afternoon for the, for the next month. If you told me I could only hunt five hours a day, that would be my time. Um, let's see here. Where do you draw the line on draw weight and draw length for, uh, mechanicals? I kind of talked about that earlier. Uh, the mechanicals obviously are i'm a huge advocate of mechanical i love the rage tripan and the hypodermics um big fan of them uh but again recognize um your parameters if you're if you're shooting a very short draw length and lower weight you know if you're under if you're shooting mid 50s or less um then i think it'd be smart for you to uh to maybe focus on uh a cut on impact head and 
you know, they're, they're still a great thing to have. I mean, it's not like, um, a fixed blade head doesn't have, you know, it's not like there's a massive advantage for mechanical. I personally feel there is a advantage, but I also feel like if you factor in shorter draw length or, sh or lower draw weight, that advantage is not an advantage anymore because there's more opportunity for you to hit something that you're just not going to blast through with a really large cutting diameter type head. Um, next question here is, here is um, can you use hot melt on hunting arrows? Um, I just got the knock on axis. want to know if I could, um, if I can do that so it's easier um, for me to line up the fletchings with the broadheads. I've heard, I can't say that I would recommend this or do it, but I've heard that um, the cold melt, not the hot melt, I think there's a blue uh, cold melt that boning makes. I've heard that people have used those on hit systems. Hit meaning, you know, the the same bushing system, which is on the FMJs and the Axis. Um, I personally have not used it, so I don't know if it works you may want to research that specifically more uh, but I have um, I have heard that it's that it works now one thing I want to tell people is and this is really important whenever you're um, putting inserts in axis or full metal jackets um, you know you're you're utilizing that green plunger to install the inserts into the shaft and they're offset they're they're well they're inset they're inset in there and one of the things that's really important is that when you do that and you put them in recognize that there's a 24-hour um, cure period for the epoxy that comes with those bushings and with your shafts and it's critical that you lay your arrows down on a perfectly flat surface. Otherwise, that bushing that you've put in there and inset to a specific depth of that tool, that bushing will start to slide downhill. It's weight, and it's going to slide because it's not yet hardened. So there's been people that have... You know, set them on a flat surface, but when they lay them, they lay them on the veins so that they're, you know, the one edge of the shaft is up a quarter inch higher than the front. And over the course of letting them dry overnight, that's enough to let that bushing slide forward. So, you know, when you're using the epoxy, make sure you, you one, when you put the bushing in and you use the green tool to push it into the proper depth, Make sure you slowly remove it and twist it slow as you're removing it so that you're not pulling it out so fast that you're creating a vacuum and sucking that bushing closer to the front of the arrow shaft. Otherwise, you're not going to be able to get your field points in all the way. So what I'd recommend is take the tool, put them in there, remove them really slow, kind of look inside there. You're going to be able to kind of notice what the depth is. Lay it down perfectly flat. Complete your full dozen. And once you've done that, go down the end of those arrows with the light on your iPhone and look inside of the end of that shaft and make sure that none of those bushings have indeed um, got sucked towards the the end of the shaft to where they're not going to be usable. And if some, if any of the bushings have slid to the front, just put that tool in there and, again, push it in. Um, and make sure you remove it slowly. We've had a few people do that, and um, it's frustrating to do, so I'm trying to give you the tips on how not to do that. Um, I'm not 100% positive if the hot melt will hold up. One of the things I can tell you is um, there has been times where I've used a faster cure time epoxy for the hit system, but keep in mind... The faster the glue dries, oftentimes the more brittle it's going to be. So impacting on a target, eventually you'll you'll start to, to crack that bond. And sometimes the points will end up pulling out. I've seen people that have done like 
very quick dry epoxies um, to where they, you know, they harden and they cure um, inside of a few minutes. Those, once they hit something really hard, they're, they're more likely to, to, to kind of fracture. Um, so keep that in mind. Uh, let's see here. Next question is, um, let's see here. Can you discuss dough bleats versus grunts and when to use them? Um, also how effective, uh, how to effectively use dough estrus during the rut. So when it comes to scents, um, I've just never had any consistent luck putting scent on the ground deer peas or estrus or anything. I've definitely had times where adolescent deer can follow a drag line or come up more of like a curiosity smell. But when it comes to mature deer, I don't think I can really say that I've had continual positive interactions with mature deer. Um, just doesn't seem to happen for me. Um, bleats versus grunts. So a bleed is going to be a little bit higher pitch grunt so to speak so bleats would be more of a fawn or a doe um the deeper the a lot of times you know bucks are going to have a deeper grunt um i personally don't don't use anything but a grunt mainly um the bleats sometimes if you have a buck that is just specifically dogging does in the plot and he's literally going from one doe to another doe and diving into the timber and coming back and he's literally just scavenging does trying to find one that might be in heat um that might be a time where you do a little doe a doe bleat um to try to get them in but when it comes to mature deer i just feel like you know mature sounds call mature deer now if you're someone that's just totally happy getting an opportunity at any deer or any buck, then yeah, um, you know, an adolescent deer is going to be more likely to come to an adolescent deer than it is to come to something that just maybe got done kicking its butt, uh, the night before. So keep that in mind. Um, Next question says, uh, when paper tuning, I have a bullet hole with my knock to it, but why would I have a slightly left here with my silverback? So a lot of that's going to be with um, either facial pressure or um, it's going to have to do with how hard you're pulling through that release or pulling against your cams or how much, you know, when you're pulling in what direction you're pulling that. So like with a knock to it, a lot of people, they are perfectly in line. They're applying pressure and slowly doing it and they can get that release to go off with much less dynamic motion than with a silverback. With a silverback, I see people starting to clinch their hand and more pull with their bicep. And when you shoot, you start to come out away from your face rather than straight back and bringing that release hand over the top of your shoulder. When you come out and away, then if you're a right-handed shooter, as the bowstring is heading towards the bow, that bowstring is going to the right of your hand. And then as it's passing through the bow, it's coming out to the left. And then it's sending that, that left, the tail of that arrow left as it's passing past the rest and you'll end up getting that left tear. So focus on a couple things. One, focus on your um, your actual hand position of the hand holding the release. So um, you might find that if you're, if you're, and I wrote a thing about this earlier, um, if you're inverting your hand a lot and your loop is too short and you're creating string pressure on the knock itself, um, you can get adverse effects and accuracy and paper tear. Um, so pay attention to your the angle of your release hand. In other words, how flat it is or how vertical it is. And you might want to just, one, focus on pulling. And as you, as you release, the release hand should be coming over the top of the rear shoulder, not out and away from the face. It's a lot like plucking the string. If you're a recurve shooter or an, or a trad bow shooter and you pluck the string, you're flinging your fingers like away from your face and you start to get terrible arrow flight as well. 
Um, let's see. Next question here is from Camo Thrasher saying, um, what's your go-to pellet for cooking wild game on the Traeger? Um, I really, if you buy the Traeger pellets themselves, um, I like, um, the, the Realtree, um, big game pellet, or I like the apple. Otherwise, um, if you are a Costco member, the Costco's own variety, uh, blend of pellet is one of my favorites. If you, uh, do buy it from Costco, get the one in their like orange and black bag. It's their, it's kind of the Costco blend and it's a blend of multiple flavored pellets. The other one is the, the Texas one. Um, it's kind of a red, white, and blue theme on the bag. I really, really like that one as well. Um, last question here, and I'm going to have to get going, is from Espolis22 saying, have you ever had any success using Centitract? Uh, well, Centitract. And so um, I had highlighted that one. And, um, yeah, I personally don't. Um, I just haven't had consistent luck. Um with sense i've had times where deer have followed them right in i can't say it's ever been a giant um but i have had deer follow it in but i've also had deer as soon as they smell it just totally haul butt so i feel like nothing on the ground is better um i think if there's no ill smells on the ground kind of between me and the animal I feel like me maybe doing some light grunts and calling to them if they're not naturally coming my way anyway. Um, if they're naturally moving to you, nothing's better. If they're not, um, then I feel like calling can be a more effective tactic than scent, can, uh, scent sense on the ground. I think cover sense is one topic that's slightly different. Like, you know, Honestly, my cover scent a lot of times is just stepping in some fresh uh, cow manure, if I can find it, and kind of doing a little bit of that. Um, I feel like that's probably better than applying a synthetic coon or skunk scent and everything. You know, I come from a time where... Uh, you know, there was a lot of videos made very specific, you know, well, they were good, you know, well, they were primetime videos. Everyone's watched them. Um, there was so much training ingrained into people's head about cover sense and, and scent control. And, you know, just keep in mind, this is, these were, these were videos done by people that, that was their business is, you know, selling those products. So do I think there's time where they helped, you know, yes. Do I also think people should keep in mind that things are certain things are people's business? Yeah. I think you should, should keep that in mind too. Um, whitetails are crazy smart and, you know, the more of, you know, the go-go gadget things that you take out there, I just seem to think that they complicate things. Um, I feel like I've had times where I've tried using like synthetic horns or rattling bags um, at deer. And I feel like they kind of look at me like, what the hell is that? Um, I've had times where I've tried scents and they literally spin inside out of it. You know, as soon as they cross it, they just literally flip inside out or, or do a skidding, skidding uh, flip like that horse I posted the other day on, on Instagram. Um, that's my feelings to it. I, I just really try to keep things simple. I try to keep pressure light. I always, I play the wind. I pick and choose my battles. I don't imprint, you know, I have cameras out. I have a ton of uh, stealth cams out right now, but I'm not going in there and checking them every single day. Um, I'm, literally always carrying an empty SD card in my my release pouch. So when I pass any of those cameras going to or from a stand, I will swap the cards out. I carry a little card reader with me that I plug into my phone and I'll look at the uh, 
pictures while I'm in my stand to try to get an idea for of what's been coming or if there is something patternable. And if there is a day where overall the weather is just really, really crappy and I don't really have a pattern on anything and I need to get a kind of have some intel, I might use a, a midweek crappy weather day to to make my rounds and and check some cameras and try to establish a game plan for that that future time coming up. But Hopefully that stuff helps everyone out there. I appreciate everyone uh, posting their questions. There's times where um, I may dive back into those that I haven't answered. Sorry, I can't answer everybody's. I know people are like, man, I filled this out and didn't even answer my question again. Um, Sorry, I'm doing my best. I'm a one-man show. So, well, when it comes to podcasts, unless I have a guest. So, appreciate the heck out of all of you and have... An awesome last week of October here, people. We're getting ready to get into the awesome time, and I can't wait. Talk at you later. Knock on. Be sure to visit knockonarchery.com to see our entire line of trendy knock-on lifestyle clothing. Knockonarchery.com.